This is called Cumulus. The houses on Brofdale Ave puke their guts onto the curb. Cul-de-sac Island spills a gyre of graduated things. Mesh-backed office chair, graduated. Three-legged desk, graduated. Mattress, beer fridge, ragged lamp, textbooks jammed into rubber bins, sumacum laud, piled so high, oh, the places you will go. U-Hauls line the street, sides painted like Carnival 10-in-1s advertising roadside attractions, mountain lion, brown bat, zebra, Venus flytrap, and pitcher plant. The rain picks up, fire eaters snuff torches, buskers count change, the street preachers huddle under hot dog umbrellas, their magic marker Babylon signs starting to run. Parents prowl up and down, dads looking for parking, looking for the right pile to pack, for the Allen key, tie-downs, making room in the trunk in the basement for the flood of homecomings. The sky weighs heavy on Brofdale Ave, straining the street like a French press. The storm drain covers sort the river from road. The gutters run slick rainbows. All of our promises converge. Welcome to the second episode of Iconicast. This is Nara Montero, one of our hosts, and I'm here with Tom Cull, a Western professor, nature poet, previous poet laureate of London, and a candidate for the Green Party of Canada. You just heard him reading the poem, Cumulus. So this is a new one. It's inspired by Brofdale Ave, which, of course, gets a lot of press around Western for its parties. Um, I walk down Brofdale every day when I walk to school and particularly in the um, spring when students are moving out, you notice the piles and piles of garbage that end up on the curb. And as someone who deals with a lot of garbage in this community as a river cleanup person, um, I think a lot about that garbage, uh, not to kind of point out anything specific about students, but more about how we as a society and a culture consume and the ways that we uh, consume and have a throwaway culture and the things that we own and that are in our houses end up in landfills for thousands of years. So that's something for you to keep in mind this FOCO weekend (laughs) to our listeners. Um, How long have you been teaching your nature course? Yeah, so my course um, that I'm teaching this fall is called uh, You're a Strange Animal, Writing Nature, Writing the Self. And it is preoccupied by those questions that you, all of those uh, themes or or questions um, that um, your submission call deals Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, specifically our relationship to nature, but also nature, what is nature? This is my third year. Um, I've been, you know, it it came out of my interests uh, of, you know, I would, if if there was a genre of poetry that I write in, I guess it would be nature poetry. My friend uh, and author, David Hubert, uh, he's a poet and a writer, a novelist. Uh, We've written a couple of articles about nature writing poetry and trying to kind of investigate what it is. So the course has been running for three years and... um, Oh, it's a lot of fun. Nature is, I think it's Raymond Williams who said that nature is one of the hardest words to define. Um, It's one of the slipperiest words to define. So we kind of begin with that. Um, And then, uh, yeah, talk about our personal Mm -hmm. relationships with nature. Um, And we look at it from 
uh, multiple lenses, including science. Um, uh, and also look at it from the history of nature writing, which is still very much steeped in the romantic tradition, mm -hmm. right, of that uh, sublime moment when you step out into nature and discover yourself and or God. Um, uh, that's interesting. Um, it's an interesting uh, history to study, but um, we're trying to kind of push those definitions, categorical definitions of nature and nature uh, poetry. And we spend a great deal of time in the course outside actually trekking around campus. In uh, Last week, we went on a tour with an ornithologist, Brendan. Um, he's a PhD student here. And he took us around and showed us um, all the buildings on campus where there's untreated glass that kills um, hundreds of birds each year. And we actually went and collected migratory birds that had uh, smashed into these buildings and died. So uh, we collected about eight birds last week. Oh and then we did a writing uh, prompt based on, you know, birds, of course, have always been the um, a very, um, what's it called, uh, you know, uh, a theme of nature writing. Everyone has a bird poem, right? And so we were thinking about different kinds of bird poems. Yeah. yeah. Next week, uh, we're going to see Dr. Nina Zatani, who is uh, a professor of biology, and she's taking us on a tree tour of campus. Our campus has an arboretum, a collection of trees. It's called the Sherwood Fox Arboretum, a collection of native trees and non-native trees. Um, and so we're going to learn about what trees are, and we're going to go on a tour and see these trees as our literary prompt. We're going to interview some trees and see what they have to say. I'm going to go ahead and suggest our listeners try that exercise themselves. Do that, um, but don't try it with weeping will uh, willows. They'll, they'll just bum you out. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to the occasional outdoors class when yeah. I was still in middle school and we were in a stuffy portable that was just way too hot in the summer. Yeah. Um, I'm also someone who comes from a tropical country and so the cold is a bit of a challenge for right. me. so I was wondering yeah. if you have if you feel like that relationship changes over the semester as it becomes colder outside and harder to go outdoors for these kinds of things yeah I'm glad you asked that question because I, I, I circle back around to the surprise um, I really encourage students to kind of also um, uh, yeah, to write honestly about nature uh, because not all of our experiences with nature are good. Some of them are very uncomfortable. Some of them are terrifying, um, you know, and so that's also the surprise too, that part, which is like we don't have to go out and write a poem about like standing on a beach and feeling fulfilled <laughs> by, you know, all of nature around us. Um, you know, we can talk about like what it means to be, you know, stuck planting trees and mosquitoes constantly pestering you until you think you're going to explode, right? You can think about being uncomfortable in the wintertime. Um, we run the course Rain or Shine, uh, and we do the projects Rain or Shine. So I tell the students, you know, be ready. And I, if it looks like rain, I email them and say, remember to bring your rain gear because we, I want... Uh, I, I want that experience to be 360 degrees. I don't want it to be just like, oh, we go outside when it's nice um, and we go outside and the experience is always a nice experience. You know, we do a river cleanup on campus and that's not a nice experience. There's, it's never nice to go on a river cleanup. You know, you're picking up garbage. Uh, it's not as bad as... Uh, sometimes downtown can be, but on one particular one, we did find uh, hypodermic needles. Uh, we found a whole bunch of uh, evidence of people living rough, and uh, we encountered what it means uh, 
to think about uh, where social issues like homelessness and addictions and mental health intersect with uh, environmental issues. That is, um, that's challenging. Uh, that's challenging to think about, um, but it's important to think about. It's really wonderful to hear that you guys actually get out there and put your hands in it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's one of the problems we're facing right now as, as a society. It's very easy to talk and think about these things on this like massive abstract kind of plane. But when do we actually get out and get into the natural world? When did that start for you? Yeah, that's an interesting, I mean, uh, so much, many of our understandings of nature uh, are mediated, right? Um, Like, uh, I think a lot of people feel that they, um, when they, (laughs) they are mediated by David Attenborough's voice, (laughs) right? You know, we, we think about the BBC World uh, or nature series, right? And that's how we encounter nature. And we think of nature as being something out there, rather than uh, thinking about uh, the ecology of our immediate situation, even in this room that we're sitting in here, Mm -hmm. you know, this is supposed to be kind of inside and away from nature, but there are bugs, there are animals, there are microcosms, you and I are animals, we're interacting. So, you know, um, we're trying to kind of push those uh, binaries a little bit in the class. For me, it all began where I grew up, which was on us about uh, 98 acres of uh, forest and ponds and river um, and Treaty treaty 29 territory uh, up near Godridge. And uh, a river that was called the Maitland, before it was called the Maitland, it was called the Manassatong River uh, in Ojibwe. Uh, That river ran through our property and uh, so I did spend a very kind of pastoral, idyllic youth out, you know, playing in quote unquote nature. Um, and uh, that river, I think, is deeply uh, imprinted on me. It was, you know, we fished in the river, we swam in the river. Uh, it was a pretty healthy river. And I think wherever I've gone in my life, I've been, I look for that river. And uh, when I moved to London, of course, we have the Thames or Dashkan Zibi. Uh, as it's known in uh, Anishinaabe Moan. And so, um, yeah, that has become my adopted river. You mention a lot of these local places in your writing. Yes. Um, and as I've been kind of studying some of the writing classes at Western, it's very interesting from, from a perspective, like someone who usually reads very international work, to yeah. see so many local places in writing. Do you think that changes the experience for people reading? Do you think it uh, does something different for the people who know those places and for the people who are reading from elsewhere? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I've always written about place, about where I am. I'm interested in local history. There's, of course, a great um, you know tradition of regionalism in London, regional art. Um, that's both um, writing and painting and, and um, graphic art. Uh, I've always thought that you access, you know, the universal through the specific and the local. And my concerns have always been about local con- local concerns. Um, and I encourage students that, you know, kind of in the basics of, you know, writing, uh, you have to begin with specific, uh, uh, with the specifics of your surrounding um, and with significant details, you know, from your life. And um, that's a way that you kind of access the bigger things like life, death, love, all those big themes. If you start with those things, you're kind of in an abstract world where it's very hard for your reader to get uh, a solid footing. Um, but I think my insistence on the local is also kind of a politically uh, driven one in, in terms of how I think about nature and how I think about the work that we need to do to protect nature and to redefine our relationship to nature.
I think, um, unfortunately, many people in my generation are understandably a little skeptical of the uh, ways we can change that relationship through political will. So I was wondering yeah. what uh, inspired you to run for office? Yeah, what inspired me to run for office? Uh, a number of things. I've been working, um, my wife and I, Miriam, um, and our son, he was two and a half at the time, started mm -hmm. a river cleanup group uh, about eight years ago. Um, and that was a response to just walking along the river every day. I love being by the river and just seeing the garbage. And I was grumbling about it. And Miriam said, you know, we should maybe do something about it instead of grumbling about it. So we started cleaning the river and it turned into this organization that we have now. And we worked with hundreds of Londoners and we've pulled hundreds of tons of garbage out of the out of the river over the last eight years and um, we've learned a lot we've got involved in all sorts of aspects of environmental stewardship that's part of it doing that work at the local level um, but doing it and not seeing the changes like we go back to the same parts of the river uh, year after year sometimes month after month right and so I've been thinking about how transformation can come from below, and it's important for grassroots initiatives, but they have to be supported upstream by policy and legislation. And so I've now kind of, I've, I'm looking upstream and thinking about upstream. Um, and so that was part of it. The other part of it is that I don't think um, as, a, as a country, uh, even as a world, we have come to terms yet with climate crisis. Um, certain places have because it's happening, right? We're insulated in Canada. Um, and the rich and the privileged will always be uh, more insulated from the greater effects of, of climate crisis. I have a nine-year-old, and I'm thinking about his future. I have nieces and nephews. I, you know, I know everyone has young people in their lives. Um, I'm also inspired by young people, you know, like Autumn Pelletier uh, and Greta Thunberg, who are, you know, taking up the mantle where my generation is failing. <laughs> it's failing um, to make uh, to make the changes necessary. And um, so that was my other inspiration is that, you know, um, if we're not going to lead, then we need to get behind behind these young voices and amplify them uh, and make sure we're doing everything we can. So those are those those are the two um, uh, motivations behind the run for office, my run for office, yeah. To come back to something you were just talking about, um, you mentioned the intersection of, you know, social issues and environmental yeah. issues. That's yeah. one of the big challenges people talk about moving forward as we try to address the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts about that on a local or an international level? Absolutely. So thinking about the intersections, these intersections is very important because we're seeing, I think, uh, with a growing climate crisis, uh, we're going to see certain things happening. Uh, I think we're already seeing it in the states where emergency and crisis are creating a kind of political atmosphere of divisiveness, of pitting people against each other, of closing borders, of building walls, of um, 
of legitim- trying to legitimize and normalize the putting of people in cages, the separating of women and children, these kinds of things that we're seeing at the uh, at the southern border. I you know, I teach I taught American studies when I first uh, taught at Western, um, so I've been thinking about that as well. I taught with the rise of Trump, and you know, kind of anticipating how he would um, leverage the already kind of divisive. Um, aspects in American political life. They've always been there. He's nothing new. He's just the new expression of very, very old um, aspects of that American experiment in, in, de- in democracy and republicanism. So that's, for me, the worry is how um, already targeted communities, racialized communities, minority communities, and the vulnerable are already feeling the worst effects of climate change, right? And we see this anytime that there's a flood in a city, right? Um, So it is very disturbing. And that's why I think it's important to think about climate change and social justice as one and the same, um, because they are. So that's a real worry. And um, I think we're seeing the divisive rhetorics uh, bleeding across the border. And I think that we are going to have to deal with that here. I talk to a lot of people. I knock on a lot of doors when I'm canvassing. And I see that people are scared. And I see that people are worried. And I see that people are angry. That is a very, very um, potentially dangerous combination of feelings for people to have um, because it makes people more susceptible to these kinds of messages of like, the reason that your problems are um, this is because of this person or this immigration policy, you know. And so it's easy to divide people. Um, and of course, that's the goal of, authorita- of authoritarian power is to divide people against themselves and then, you know, uh, instill yourself in the center of it. In this time of um, impending doom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting here asking you questions on a podcast that I produce at yeah. a magazine that I founded. So obviously I'm also a creator, but I do keep finding myself returning to the question of why am I putting all my energy into this creation? It does feel yeah. strange to put so much energy into art when um, I've gone to a few of the strikes, but like I could dedicate my life to this issue. Um, so I just, I wanted to know what your thoughts were on why do we do this? What yeah. is its import and impact to continue creating? I think it's important not to see creation, artistic work or cultural work as separate from um, political work. Um, I think that that's a false dichotomy. I think the work that you are doing in this room right now, the conversations that we're having matter and that are connected to what's happening. Uh, You know, everyone talks about, you know, the real world. Uh, This is the real world, (laughs) you know, and if ever we've needed creativity, uh, imagination, um, new ways of looking at things, um, it's now and this is what art can do and this is what um, cultural work can do is it can help us uh, rethink the problems and the solutions and so yeah I I, I say that we um, we keep on creating right we keep on we keep on doing this work and um, we also try to get to as many rallies as we can there is a massive movement going across the world um, you know what I do politically with the Green Party uh, you know I, I uh, it's part of a bigger 
you know, massive transformation or a call for a transformation. Your question is only only going to get uh, more prescient and more important. In the past few days, I was reading about uh, two other moments in history where climate activism kind of reached a bit of a yeah. height um, at some point in the late 70s, early 80s, and then again in the mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering um, if you remember those times um, or and if you have any thoughts on what makes this climate so Rachel Carson's Different. Silent Spring right, was, was uh, an important movement, uh, an important moment in the environmental movement. Um, and um, this was her book about where she published uh, about um, how insecticides and chemicals uh, specifically, uh, I think it was PCBs, um, were destroying uh, bird, bird populations. Um, and uh, and that was her book, Silent Spring, silent because there were no bird calls. Um, that book was an important, uh, it's also an incredibly literary book, the way that she describes. I, I use it, I, I use parts of it in my literature course to talk about the important way that we talk about literature and write about literature. She was a scientist, but she wrote in a way that used literary conventions to really convey, you know, the full importance of what was happening. So, you know, that book um, was so important. I mean, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States, was kind of created because of that book. Um, And that's a great example of how literature can have such an important Mm -hmm. impact. So, you know, I see that as a, uh, as a big moment. We got together as a world and we banned uh, CFCs in, you know, spray cans to save the ozone layer, right? We've done things before on a massive level. We have precedents. We have historical precedents. Um, and we also have historical precedents for the mobilization that this will take. The name of the author is, is slipping my mind right now, but he contends, and many others do, that you know, to confront the issue of climate crisis, we need a, a mobilization on the scale of World War II. Uh, I, I'm, I completely agree. It's instructive to know that we have historical precedents where a generation identified a problem, unified, and did something about it. And we lionize those people. We always talk about the greatest generation. We always talk about the sacrifices. On Remembrance Day, for example, we talk about the sacrifices that people made to ensure our future. And in some ways, I think people think they put themselves, they want to put themselves in those shoes and say, what would I would have done? I would have wanted to be a hero as well, you know, or my generation didn't get, you know, a call to war. We didn't get to mobilize around something. Well, guess what? We do, you know, and this is our moment. No challenge, no two challenges are going to look the same, right? But it's important to say, see that this is an existential threat. This is, this is our moment to rise uh, to that challenge. I know this sounds all a bit kind of, you know, political speechy and epic in its kind of proportions. And you do, I do worry about, you know, uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't want to move into hyperbole. But people are not seeing the problem for what it is. You know, when you have a city like Houston, which in 2017, I think had its third 500-year storm in three years, there's a reason they're called 500-year storms, right? These things are coming to our door to circle 
back to your question. Um, I think about those historical precedents all the time because I think that they're very instructive for uh, for ways that we can uh, that ways that we can kind of rise to this challenge. In this upcoming election season, do you have any words either of advice or call to action or comfort to the students listening to this? I do. I do. You know, um, when it comes to any kind of political issue, or let's just say the climate issue, we talk a lot about personal lifestyle choices when it comes to fighting greenhouse gases. You know, whether you drive or whether you bike or whether you, uh, you know, recycle or use plastic or don't use plastic or, you know, all of those are very important and it does matter what you do and it, those personal life choices do matter but we need more than that we need systemic change the most powerful way to achieve systemic change is be either either on the street protesting or in the ballot box your vote is so important if uh, millennials and generation the generation I don't what's the generation younger than the millennials Gen Z is all what I've heard it Gen called. Z uh, if those two demographics come out they could choose who they wanted to lead this country they could themselves be um, the difference maker so don't despair never despair about the future you know there there are doomsdayers out there and right now Hollywood is just feeding us this kind of steady meal of apocalyptic images. I have nightmares. I have a young child in my care. You know, I'm worried about his future and I have been fed on those apocalyptic visions. And it is deeply concerning because the science is backing those visions up, saying if we do not move you know, this is what's going to happen. So whether it's about, you know, uh, that one issue of climate change or just the politics that you want to see in the world, um, get involved. I say that at the same time, casting my mind back to when I was an undergrad, I was worried about a whole bunch of things. Politics, yes, because I was, you know, in I was taking poli sci and those kinds of things. But in more abstract terms, I wasn't getting involved uh, at the local level because I was busy. I had a job. I was, you know, I was I was trying to pay bills and trying to go to school. Um, so I understand that there are other things going on in your life. But in the very least, in the very least, you can Google something that says, tell me about the four parties or the five parties or the six parties. How There are lots of parties running. Tell me about what their policies are. Do a little bit of research and then go and vote on October 21st. Some would say that the real divide in this country is not between political parties, but between the politically engaged and the politically disengaged. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, half people don't vote. Um, I think that's uh, incredibly important. It's like one of those things where you kind of don't want to do it. And it's kind of a pain because you have to go and you have to find out where it is. But you just feel good afterwards. It's like working out. You know, you didn't want to get to the, you know, you know, but if you can just drag your butt to the gym that, you know, you feel great after the workout. That's the same with voting. You just feel like, oh, yeah, that's this is a good thing that I just did. Um, and I think more than ever, it's important for people to vote in this election because people are going to make decisions in the next four years that will profoundly affect your lives. Everything from your economic security to the livability of the planet. Again, it sounds very hyperbolic, uh, but it is quite true. Um, and so make sure that at least you exercise the power of your vote.
Listen, the only way to deal with anxiety around these things is put your shoulder to the wheel of some cause and do something about it. Uh, that's how I'm dealing with my anxiety. You were just listening to chants from London, Ontario's contingent of the global climate strike on Friday, September 27, 2019. Preliminary calculations put strike numbers at 7 million people. Coming up is a final poem from Tom Cull. But first, I'd like to extend a huge thank you, Tom, for coming in and speaking to us. You can follow Tom's river cleanup group, Antler River Rally, to keep up with his community work. And his book, Bad Animals, is available for sale from Insomniac Press. The Uprooted Call for Submissions is open until Saturday, October 19th. Check out our website, iconoclastuwo.com, for more information, or find us on social media at iconoclastuwo. Join the conversation. Send us your thoughts and your art. This podcast is produced by Iconoclast Collective, co-hosted by myself and Aisha Khan, and edited by me. We're grateful for the generous support of Radio Western in this endeavor. This is Nara Montero, and on behalf of the Icon team, thanks for tuning in. Finally... Here's the poem on the shooting of a black bear by Tom Cull. The black bear's body bag was black with white nylon handles. Five officers hauled him from the backyard of a Newmarket home on London Road where he'd been shot by York Regional SWAT. The gun, an M4 carbine assault rifle. The rounds, NATO standard 5.56 millimeters designed to pierce the target, mushroom, and tear up soft tissue. The Ministry of Natural Resources arrived minutes too late with tranquilizer guns, darts, and a mobile cage. They came with phrases like ursine incursions and chemical immobilization. The supervisor spoke to the media. The growing crowd began to heckle. Y'all feel proud now? Did you stop at Tim's on the way? Someone su suggested police head down to Roncesvalles and plug the peacock on the lamb from the High Park Zoo. The bear had been spotted days earlier over in East Gwillimbury. En route to London Road, he'd wandered, lost in a suburban maze, Bristol Road, Salisbury Line, Manchester Drive, Dover Crescent, cul-de-sac loops, curvilinear streets, endless double car garages, blue bins, basketball hoops, hatchbacks, crossovers, luxury sedans, crisply cut flower beds, green grass, running sprinklers. He climbed his last tree, an ash, on Tuesday, corralled by police who hoped to keep him up there till the Ministry of Natural Resources showed up. After a while, he climbed down. They shot him four times. The black bear's body bag was black with white nylon handles. The officers lifted him into the back of a truck. At headquarters, he was examined, weighed, dissected, his teeth and claws measured, the contents of his stomach itemized. Grass, buds, berries, roots, bulbs, four Girl Scout sashes, a brownies badge, a pocket knife, 
13 pinwheeled sandwiches, two church ladies, a floppy red hat, a dream catcher, four goldfish, a shih tzu named Lion, and a newborn baby named Bryson. An autopsy on the baby later determined that the cause of death was, as suspected, ingestion by bear. <laughs> 